Father, tonight as we go into Acts again, I just pray that you would speak and that what I plan to teach, Father, would, would be considered inadequate and, and as a result, Father, the Spirit would do the job. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And pardon me for all the sniffle and stuff. I think it's just Holland. Acts 9. We're at uh, chapter 9, verse 23. Let me just reset where we are. It's not going to take more than a moment, and we'll dive right back in. We'll finish the chapter today. Uh, in some respects, it's, it's unfortunate, I guess, it, for me, it feels unfortunate that we finished midway in that chapter as we left, because coming into the second half of the chapter is, is really anticlimactic to the, to the story of, of Paul, of Saul. It wraps up some things and gets you ready for the next section. We will go a little ways into 10 tonight. So the place we left off was in this story of Saul that Luke inserts into the larger narrative about Peter. He takes this chapter to talk about Saul, which he did as well as you remember to talk about Philip, who were two men united by a single moment in Stephen's life earlier. And so Luke has taken a couple of chapters to explore how these two men later became important to ministry. But he's going to return here quickly in chapter 10 to Peter. But as we finish, we had, the last time we met, we had Saul, uh, having seen the Lord, having been converted on the road, of course. He has then begun to preach to Jews in Damascus. And his conversion, of course, confounded everyone. Particularly, it angered the Jews in Damascus. They had lost one of their strongest weapons against the early Christians. And he, to make matters worse, had become a powerful tool of the church. So it was beyond probably their, their belief that this had taken place. And that anger turned onto Paul, onto Saul, in verse 23. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that he might be put to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. You know, cities in that day were walled, and it had uh, a primary function that was to keep the bad guys out, to protect the city. But it had a secondary effect, and that is that if you wanted to get out of the city, you were trapped. And people could watch the entrances and the exits through the gates, and they could tell if you had left the city or not, which is different than our day today. A city today is largely uncontrolled for that, from that point of view. So it's interesting to think of him being in a city and yet captive and in, and in danger unless he could leave. The phrase begins, in the verses I read begin with the phrase, many days elapsed. The word elapsed there in the, in the Greek is pleru, which you may recognize the word. It means fulfilled or perfected. So what Luke is actually saying is when the days were fulfilled, the number of days that were appointed by God had reached the appointed end. Then the Jews plotted to do away with him. What Luke is literally saying is it was time for Paul's preaching to move beyond Damascus. And when God was ready for Paul to move on, he brought the anger of the Jews against Paul to create the motive or the reason for him to actually want to move on. God's sovereignty is still clearly on display here in the center of all that happens, just as we said at the outset of this book. The spirit and the sovereignty of the Lord over his church is ever-present in Luke's narrative. And what's ironic here is just as the church itself moved outward from Jerusalem in its earliest days, by means of persecution, similarly Paul's own ministry moves out initially under this pressure of persecution. But it's particularly ironic when you consider that the church's movement out of Jerusalem was predicated by Saul himself. Now Saul's movement is predicated by the Jews that Saul was once a part of in uh, anger against the church. So at this point, he's let out down the, the wall through, a basket, uh, through an opening in the wall by a basket. But what Luke skips over here in the narrative is that this 
takes place three years after Paul's conversion. In Galatians, Paul talks at length in chapter 1 about his own experience in this moment during this time after he was converted. And Paul tells us that a considerable period of time elapsed between his conversion and this moment that Luke just describes. You can see it in Galatians 1, verses 13 through 17, one section of it. Paul writes in that letter, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and once more returned to Damascus. So Paul says by his own testimony that he left Damascus initially. Remember here in verse 16 of Galatians 1, he puts forward the reason that he did not want to consult with flesh and blood. You know, that's the natural first response we would have to this kind of a conversion. In fact, we have that response just under, let's say, more normal conversions. We want to ask people, what does it mean to be a Christian? We have questions about what it means to follow this new way of life. Or you just have general questions about what it means to be a Christian. Paul would have had all of those same questions to some degree, but then multiply that probably by a hundred because of what he did think he knew coming out of a Jewish background. Now, with all of that baggage, so to speak, trying to put it into a new context and make sense of it. What is the meaning of the law and Moses and all that I've learned now in the light of the Messiah's coming? And what does it mean that my Jewish brethren haven't accepted this, but I have? These are the questions we all come to. Fortunately, we have Paul's writing to explain that to us for the most part. Paul himself, though, doesn't have that. He's trying to seek it out. But interestingly, he, probably by the guiding of the Holy Spirit, chose to go somewhere other than a human being, as he puts it, flesh and blood, to find those answers. And so he goes into a kind of secluded experience in the desert, which we only get bits and pieces of from Paul. We don't know all that happened there, of course. Here we get a little bit of an understanding. He says, I didn't immediately consult with flesh and blood, which implies that he was consulting with something other than flesh and blood. Which means he was consulting with the Spirit of the Lord, with the Lord himself in some context. That's the part of the story we would really love to hear more about. He gives a little bit more of that experience in Arabia in another letter in 2 Corinthians. It's not clear that he's talking about this experience, but many people believe, I believe, that he, that he is. And it seems reasonable given what he says. In 2 Corinthians 12, 2, he, he talks about himself in the third person. So don't get confused by that. He's talking about himself, but he is speaking about a man in the third person. But it's, in, it's him he's talking about. He says in verse 2 of 2 Corinthians 12, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. By the way, the term third heaven in Scripture refers to God's throne room. The reason they use third as a distinction for describing that heaven is because the word heaven in Scripture is only used 
is synonymous with what we today have for words like outer space or the, the atmosphere. We have atmosphere, we have outer space, we have God's throne room. But in Hebrew and then in, in the tradition of Jewish writers, they talked about first, second and third heaven because the word heaven in Hebrew is the same word for all three places. So birds fly in the heaven in Genesis 1. The stars and the moon and the sun are in the heavens in Genesis 1. And God is seen in his throne room in the heaven, in the heavenly places. So they're all heaven in the same in, in, in Hebrew. So we call first heaven is where the birds fly. Second heaven is where the moon and sun is. Third heaven is where God is. So that's why he says I was in the third heaven. The distinction in Paul's calling to the faith and then his his calling and commissioning as an apostle and that and the extraordinary degree of his knowledge was a part of or a necessity or prerequisite for his special appointment by Christ. It goes to demonstrate just how much the Lord wanted Paul's life and ministry to rise above what most of us would experience in our own walk. And, and that is not to say, by the way, that unless you have a Paul-like experience on the road to Damascus, followed up by a third heaven audience with the Lord, that excuses us from having to live to the standards that Paul himself prescribed. That is not what I'm suggesting. Paul's standards are not Paul's. They were the standards the Lord delivered to him in, in his revelation to Paul so that he would deliver them to us. But it does explain why his ministry would have so much greater magnitude and reach and effectiveness and the long-lasting legacy of Scripture itself and all that Paul wrote, of course, in the New Testament. We can explain Paul's unique contributions in light of how God had appointed him to, to this unique role. And by the way, this is nothing new for God. We have Abrahams and we have Davids and we have Solomons and we have these people that God has at times appointed to very unique roles. And in association with that appointment, he's often then equipped them and gifted them in unique ways. The prophets are the classic example. How many of us have accomplished the eight miracles that Elijah accomplished or the 16 that Elisha accomplished? Uh, you know, these are not typical things, but they do come at times when God is, is, is needing them in order to accomplish his work. So Paul, just to recap, Paul is in Damascus at the very beginning. He is converted. He seeks by the Spirit's counsel an audience that is not in flesh and blood so that he can be taught in a way that is so profound and impactful that he comes out of that experience back into Damascus and is the apostle that we know in his writing. He stays then in uh, Damascus some period of time after his return. Then he's pressed out by persecution. In Damascus... That persecution took the form of the Jews appealing to Roman authorities to get Paul arrested. And as with Jesus, they would have made false accusations. Paul says in, in another part of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11 this time, verse 30, that it required that they convince the ethnarch of that Roman province to arrest Paul in order to get it done. Paul says, if I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weaknesses in 2 Corinthians 11.30. Going on, he says, The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Eretus, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascians in order to seize me, and I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and so escaped his hands. You notice in that account, by the way, that Paul is describing it as an example of his weakness. He says, if I'm going to boast in anything, let me boast about the things that are shameful. 
Like, for example, the time I had to sneak out of the city in a baby basket because I was being chased by the authorities in the city. That's, I think, Paul's way of showing I didn't have the courage, perhaps, or I didn't have the ability to withstand. I was a weak person who had to be carried by others in a basket out of the city. Anyway, having left the city, Paul arrives at Jerusalem, verse 26 now, Acts 9, back in Acts 9.26. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. And, but when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, enjoyed peace, being built up. And going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. So naturally, this is such a great scene. I really, there's moments in Scripture like this that you wish you could film because it would just be of such an entertaining moment. The moment when Paul arrives in Jerusalem and tries to knock on the doors of the disciples to say, hey, I'm here, let's get together sometime for coffee. Hey, let's chat about the Lord. And, of course, their first reaction, now keep in mind that you have to put this in its full context, the historical context. Had he not been converted, let's say, when he arrives in a city like Jerusalem, he would have immediately reported to the Sanhedrin, told them what he had done, taken new orders. They would congratulate him, I guess, but then they'd send him out again. He was their enforcer, and he was the guy they were sending out to do their work. But, of course, as a Christian, he didn't seek their fellowship. He came to the different group. He came to the disciples, so he came there first. But it's equally natural for that group to want nothing to do with him. The last time they saw Paul was three years ago. And in those intervening three years, Paul's been out of pocket in Arabia, third heaven. While he's off for three years, what do you think people back in Jerusalem are probably hearing about Saul? Well, they knew what he had been doing before he disappeared, certainly. So all of that was well understood, well known. The last time they saw him was three years earlier as he watches over the stoning of Stephen. Then they hear about something strange. They hear rumors, whisperings, stories, myth. He was, he was on the road. Jesus appeared to him. He was converted. No, really? Yes. No, they said he was. They, he came and he appeared to some disciples. He was blind for a while. Then he was not. Then, then he left and we haven't seen him since. And so there's a bit of that that's been going on for three years. You know how people will do that with stories and no proof and no one to talk to and verify. He's, he's disappeared. And then... As people have debated him, suddenly he appears three years later and he says, I'm a follower of Jesus and I want fellowship. It it's obviously seems too good to be true and probably it tr- seems like a trick. You might even assume that he was there to spy on them or try to learn more about these people so that he could turn them in. So they do the obvious thing, they reject him. In fact, and here's what I found interesting in my own study, I didn't know this until this time around. If we read Paul's own account in Galatians, we see that Paul says himself he never was able to associate with the Jerusalem church. He never had fellowship with that church, at least not in this visit, in his initial visit. Galatians 1.18, Paul says, Then three years later, and that's how we know it's three years, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, Peter in other words, and stayed with him 15 days. That must have been an interesting 15-day visit. But I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, James, as you remember, was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So it would make sense that Peter and James would have been the two of anyone to spend time with this guy and try to figure him out. 
Then Paul goes on. Now, in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith, which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. He says he was unknown by sight to the churches of Judea. Based on Barnabas' testimony, Paul is able to gain an audience with Peter and stays with him 15 days. We know that. Uh, it probably required that long, by the way, for Peter to become comfortable that what was going on was real. Remember the last time Peter saw Paul? He was standing over the body of Stephen. Now he's eating in his house, living with him. You look at that transformation. Here's Peter, here's Saul, rather, once standing over Stephen, stoning him. Three years later, he comes back and he's sleeping and eating and visiting with the man who was leading that movement in the day that he tried to stop it. That would tell you that Paul, better than any other man, would have understood his own words when he wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. I have to believe no one understands that better than Paul. By his own conversion, he was truly a new human being. And he spent his time now in Jerusalem trying to show that to these people. Now, in addition, he meets James. We've already said that. But did you notice when Paul talks about this in Galatians 1, in that passage I read, Paul says he saw no other disciples while he was there. In fact, in verse 22, Paul says that no disciples in the Judean church knew him by sight. They only had heard these rumors of what he was doing. Back in Acts, look at the story in Acts again. In verse 27, it mirrors what Paul just said. Verse 27, Barnabas introduced Paul to the apostles. That would be Peter and James. Those two apostles, not all of them, just those two. Because Paul himself says those are the only two he saw. Then Luke says, Paul moved freely about the city preaching to the Jews. I think that's what he means when Paul says they heard of me preaching. I think it very well may have been the case that it was not common for the average disciple the average Christian in that day, to spend their days walking around the city preaching in somewhat in the same sense as today. We don't see typically every Christian, as they become a believer, leave their daily walk of life and become a full-time missionary. In this day, that role was played largely by the apostles with a few others like Philip and Stephen who took it on as well. But the average Christian did their, their job and took care of their home and went to the synagogue, but they praised the name of the Lord. If that's true, then... Peter and James and Paul were the principal evangelists of Jerusalem for the time he spent in that city. But he had not really any, any fellowship with the rest of the church. Paul's point in all of Galatians 1 is that his message came from God, not from men. He was not part of a movement in which he joined them. He was always distinct. Paul's calling was distinct. His training was distinct. His audience was distinct in the Gentiles, and he was a loner almost exclusively in his ministry. He had men with him at a at time, Mark, Barnabas, Luke, others, but he was generally alone in the way he pursued his ministry. He had his own missionary journey, his own path. It does argue for the correctness in some cases for ministry to be solitary, for someone's calling to be so different than what they have around them that they are doing something unique, different, and apart from others, and maybe in a way that others really can't join them very effectively. And then again, there'll be plenty of other examples where it's a communal effort and needs to be. So I think it allows for both. I think Peter, Paul rather stands as an example of one kind of pattern. Eventually, his preaching upsets the Jews in Jerusalem, just as it did in Damascus, and they run him out of town as well. But do you notice a pattern here that's developing in Luke's account? 
The gospel has been preached to the Jews who reject it and they persecute it. So the God, God sends the message to the Samaritans who receive it. That's part of his promise to extend it beyond the Jews into the Samaritans or into the Gentiles. But nevertheless, the apostles still continue to preach the message to Jews. And again, here as an example, they're rejecting it. They're seen rejecting it. Every time it comes to them, they reject it. So now it's going to go outward a second time. The first time was to the Samaritans. Now Luke's account is setting us up for what starts in chapter 10. Chapter 10 begins the next phase of outward movement of the gospel. If you remember back at the beginning of the study, we talked about a bullseye where it starts in Jerusalem. Salvation is of the Jews and it begins there. Ground zero moves outward and then it's going to move outward again and again throughout the story of, of uh, Acts. In fact, the whole narrative of Acts is a one way trip away from Jerusalem out and it ends in, in Rome. So this is the next stage about to begin. It's going to go to Tarsus, which we've just seen reference to. Uh, Paul mentioned that the trip to Tarsus in Galatians one as well. He called it Syria and Sicilia. Paul then stays in Tarsus for, by the way, for 10 years. Uh, so his ministry goes for three years training back down to Jerusalem for a time. Ten years then in Tarsus after his conversion, that conversion itself, Paul's movement away from persecution and toward being a Christian is credited at the end here of chapter nine with being reason for the peaceful period the church experiences in Judea, Galilee and Samaria, Judea. Galilee and Samaria, those three regions comprise today what land, what people group? Israel. They're divided in the day because of cultural and, and political reasons, but they're still largely Jewish, still largely what we today would consider Israel. So it is still a Jewish church, even to this point. Samaritans have been brought in. They were that first step outward, but they are still in many respects near Jew from the point of view of the Jews. So they... They are still largely Israel. And remember, it's been decades since Christ's death and resurrection. And yet still, the gospel has yet to be preached to Gentiles in a concerted way. When is the promise to Abraham going to be fulfilled? When is the gospel going to bless all nations? We're decades into the church and it's still largely a Jewish experience. And yet we have this man, Saul, now who has been converted. He's been gifted and called. And we know his calling is to the Gentiles. How is Paul is going to start preaching to the Gentiles when Peter has the keys to the kingdom. Remember this? Peter was given the keys to the kingdom, which we've understood as we've studied it already. It means that it was going to be Peter's initiative, Peter's personal involvement in, required by Christ for the gospel to find its receptive audience in each new group outward. So before any Jew would believe it, it required Peter to be at Pentecost. And before the Samaritans could be acknowledged and accepted into the faith and receive the Holy Spirit, it required James, uh, John and Peter to travel down and, and see what Philip was doing in Samaria. Here's now the next stage. Before Paul, who has now been a, uh, uh, an apostle for at least three years, he's now going to spend ten years in Tarsus. Before he can move out to do the ministry he has to do, it requires Peter to make the decision that the Gentiles are to be received into the church and now have the gospel opportunity. Keeping in mind, of course, that Peter couldn't have withheld it. God is in control. Nevertheless, God wanted Peter to be there and be involved and not forced, but to understand it and to agree with it. So Peter's mind has to be changed. His heart has to be changed, even as he is 
uh, involved spiritually in letting this turn take place for the Gentiles. But before Luke can give us that next installment on the spread of the gospel, he's going to take a moment in chapter 10 to show us how much of a barrier Peter's prejudice toward Gentiles is becoming or has become to the spread of the gospel to the Gentile believers. But it can be breached and it's going to be breached uh, through an experience that God provides. So in chapter 9, verse 32, let's move from there into chapter 10 and you'll see this, this account as Luke provides it, showing us Peter's turn. You'll notice immediately, by the way, in chapter 9, verse 32, that the subject of the, of the story returns to Peter. Now, as Peter was traveling through all those, all those regions, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda, or Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Immediately he got up. And all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. What regions is he said to be traveling through, Peter? You just have to glance back up to the last things. Right. The three regions that Paul was, or the three areas that were said to be peaceful as a result of Paul's conversion. There we see again, where is Peter spending his time in ministry? Entirely within the confines of what we today would call Israel. By the way, James is holding down the fort during this time in Jerusalem. So Peter is really the traveling apostle of the early church. James is the uh, church leader holding down the fort in Jerusalem. Notice, as we said, Peter is entirely focused on the Jews or in the case of the Samaritans, near Jews. At one point, she, we, we read here, he, he reaches Lydda. And later in the account in a minute, you're going to see he's in Joppa. Both of these are seaports on the Mediterranean. And Peter finds in these places believers already living there. And the sense of the text is this is Peter's first time there as an apostle. So it stands to reason these are Jews who were dispersed probably from Jerusalem or maybe they were converted by Philip's ministry in Samaria or onward from there. Remember, Philip, after he left Samaria and was taken by the spirit, he ended up on the seacoast. So these could be Philip disciples. By the way, the main airport of uh, Israel now is at Lydda. So if you've ever flown into uh, Jerusalem or flown into Israel, you've been in Lydda. Peter does what must have been routine for chief apostles. He heals this man, and uh, in this case, a, a believer who is paralyzed. Peter prays, feels the Spirit's leading, calls upon the man to stand, and the man is healed, and, and it results in many believing. You can assume this is somewhat routine just by the fact that you see this taking place as he comes into these cities routinely. You're going to see in the next account just how routine it is. But Luke says that all who lived, and this is an important phrase, all who lived at Lydda and Sharon uh, saw him and they turned to the Lord. So at first glance, you might be tempted to think that Peter's miracle here converted an entire city, which is reminiscent of Jonah, who interestingly also passed through Joppa under different circumstances. But it's actually not what it sounds like. It's because the phrase all who lived at Lydda in the Greek literally would mean or in the way it implies uh, who lives there. It's actually in the Greek more of those who dwelled or made their home in Lydda. That's the sense of it. That would infer or imply the Jews of the city. Remember, this is a Jewish place, a Jewish part of the or part of Judea, a part of the, the nation of Israel proper. Those who dwell there are those who are the, the natural heirs of the place, the, the people who, who had grown up there. This was their ancestral home. That's the sense of it. 
So the majority of the city in this day, we know historically, was Gentile. So what Luke is actually saying here in so many words is the minority Jewish population of the city were drawn to Christ in faith by this miracle. That alone is still impressive, not to make it sound less important, but it's important to understand what that says about Peter's ministry. How is it that only the Jews would hear the message and not the Gentiles? Or how is it that the Jews would respond and not a single Gentile, if that's in part what it's saying, let's if, if it is true to suggest that it is only the minority group there, those who dwell, it would have to be supernaturally created. It has to be as if, as if God has drawn a dividing line there. And it's as evidence, Luke, in other words, is capturing this event as evidence of the fact that the Gentile audience is not yet able to receive or capable of receiving. And the distinction is so obvious when you consider that this city is evenly divided in that way. It would seem a glaring question. Why is only the Jewish population receiving? To Peter's way of thinking, if we go another step in, in some uh, suppositions here, Peter may have thought that's the natural thing to expect. If you are predisposed toward the Jews, you think the Jews are the only ones who should and would receive a Messiah, then it would make sense to you that they're the only ones who will. And you're, you have no concern, perhaps, about the fact that the Gentiles of the city are largely locked out. And of course, the reason why, if I'm right, the reason why they're locked out is because the keys to them, have, that, that part of the kingdom, have not been opened yet by, by Peter. That miracle is followed by a summons from Joppa. Joppa was a short distance away. In verse 36, now in Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. I think she preferred Tabitha. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it happened at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, laid it in an upper room, since Lida was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, do not delay in coming to us. So Peter arose and went with them. When he arrived, they brought him into the upper room and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out. And knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up, and calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. It became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. So this story, again, similar to the last you have a well-liked believer here, Tabitha or Dorcas, who dies in Joppa. Now, Joppa, as I said, is close. It's about 10 miles away from Lydda. And the word is passed to Lydda by now or to Joppa by now that Peter's been in Lydda all this time. So as soon as this event occurs, uh, there's the idea among the disciples, go get Peter. Now, first, looking just at Dorcas for a minute, she's a person who, by the testimony of the scripture, is filled with good works. Her life as a Christian within that city was one of doing things for other people. And it must have been significant enough. This isn't, I don't believe as you look at the text, it's merely a suggestion of, of affection, though I'm sure that's a part of it. But when you see widows taking time, when Peter's there, to show off everything Dorcas has made, the suggestion there is more one of need, of the value of her work to the body of Christ in that city, where they were saying, if she's not here, look what we won't have. Another suggestion or another way to look at it is maybe they were trying to show Peter she's worth it. She's worth your attention and your help. Look at all the good work she's done. She deserves this. Either way, 
She's a remarkable testimony and therefore she becomes reason for this event. Now, the question that came to my mind as I was studying this was, why would they ask Peter to come quickly if she's already dead? Why would you need Peter? The fact that the believers thought Peter could help them if he came quickly, although she's already dead, tells us that the apostles had earned a reputation of raising people from the dead. It suggests they expected him to do that. Otherwise, why bother calling him? And the fact that they had to call an apostle, though, to get this kind of a miracle accomplished is also proof of what we've said here in several places already, that these kinds of miracles were not gifts common to all believers. You had to have an apostle to get this kind of a result. It reaffirms what we've said. The apostles were uniquely gifted and had unique abilities. And yet, because he was nearby, and I think the nearness and the speed is an issue of decomposition, in Jerusalem, the rule that tradition required was that you buried on the day you died. In Judea, though, outside of Jerusalem, you could be uh, the burial could take place within three days. I understand that difference to be that the city of Jerusalem was so crowded, you didn't want dead bodies hanging around for very long. Versus anywhere else, you could deal with it. Uh, but Lazarus was three days. I think that's probably the limit that they were probably expecting. We'll count the days. She dies. If you left that day to find Peter, that's a day, more or less, to get him. He's not necessarily going to up and walk away in the very minute you arrive. There's some time delay there. So that day comes to a conclusion. You get up, you walk the next day. So now you're at least two days into this. If you allow for an extra bit of time in there, maybe it gets to the third day, maybe it doesn't. But that's the, that's the reason hurry was important. And that's why Peter had to be nearby. The women had prepared her for the traditional type of burial. And again, when he shows up, they're showing off all the clothes. They're, they're calculated, I guess, to convince Peter that, hey, this is worth your time. Let's, let's resurrect her. Peter then orders everyone else out. He prays and then he calls her to rise. And again, the miracle brings to many, many to faith in the city of Joppa. And the result of that success is Peter now stays for a considerable time, we're told, in this city. So he was in Joppa, I'm sorry, Lydda, until he's summoned to Joppa. How long was he going to stay in Lydda? And then he's in Joppa now for a considerable period of time. And if you read ahead in the story, he'll stay here until he's summoned. But the next summons comes from Caesarea, not a, a Jewish city, totally outside the land of Judea. Peter has ministered to Jews exclusively throughout the land of Judea and, and Israel proper. But he hasn't been willing to bring the keys of the kingdom to the Gentiles. He doesn't even seem to have any interest in Gentiles whatsoever. Even in a city where, like Lydda, where there was a tremendous response and a large Gentile contingent, it didn't seem to make any difference to him. Now in Joppa, and there's no indication in Joppa as to who is believing, it's not necessarily material, but based on all we know is happening in Scripture and based on the fact that we don't see a significant response to the Gentiles until later in the, in the book, it's safe to assume this is still a, a Jewish-only response. And there are some cracks showing in Peter's wall around Judaism. And Luke includes a very interesting detail there at the very end of 9. One that you really wouldn't need, apart from the fact that it's telling you something about Peter. He spends the time he's in Joppa in the home of a tanner. Now, if you've been around uh, animal, you know, to say taxidermy, uh, preparation of animals for taxidermy, it's a messy business. And the fact that you're dealing with a dead body all by itself made it an unclean activity for a Jew. Simon, the name, implies Jew. So if a Jew was to engage in the act of, of tanning as a business, 
He would have been set apart from the city, probably outside the, the limits of the city. He had to live outside the city. And he would have been unclean and he would only have been able to associate with other Jews after he became ritually clean at certain points and so on. But here's Peter living with the guy. The suggestion is that Peter is dropping at least some of his strict Jewish observance for the sake of finding a fellowship opportunity with somebody in this city. It's a tiny bit of foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the next chapter. And I find Luke's use of it is very creative. At the very end of nine, he drops that little bit. For a Jewish reader, it would have been a very significant detail. And then he takes you into chapter 10. Chapter 10 starts, verse 1. Now, there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius. Cornelius, some would say. A centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. A devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, And he fixed his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. Once again, Peter is summoned, as I said, this time to Caesarea and interestingly, by a Gentile centurion. The centurion was a non-commissioned officer in the Roman army. He would command about 100 troops, which is why we get the term centurion, uh, where that name comes from. If you made a comparison, uh, one writer I read made a comparison to today's army captain. Not in the sense that a non-commissioned officer and a commissioned officer are the same, but in the sense of their span of authority, commensurate authority. We're told that he is part of a unit or a cohort, which would be about a 600-man force, That was called the Italian cohort. It's interesting here that every reference to centurions that you will find in the New Testament is a positive reference with no exceptions. They're always the good guys. They're always the believers, the strong faithful. This centurion was a God-fearing man, as it turns out, which means he gave sacrificial gifts to the Jews, alms. He prayed to the Jewish God, which uh, would mean he was God-fearing. That's where the term comes from. It does not necessarily mean he was a believer. And by believer, I'm referring specifically to the Messiah. It does not require that he have already come to know who the Messiah was. We're saying here, though, that in whatever way God impressed this upon the man, he came to know that the pagan worship of his culture, of the Roman uh, culture, was wrong. He would not have worshipped the Caesar. He instead would have worshipped the uh, God of Israel and tried to participate to some limited degree in that worship. All of these actions, by the way, placed him in great danger in his culture. So the question is, in light of all that he was doing and how he was doing it and yet getting away with it, did he know and was he waiting for a Messiah? The the chances are probably not, like most Jews. He was simply going along with what the Jews were doing. Cornelius here represents the ultimate Gentile roadblock for Peter. And really for any Jewish evangelist. He's not only a Gentile. He was a Roman and Romans were hated because they had conquered Judea. So they were the worst of the of the Gentiles. But he was not only Roman, he was a Roman soldier who commanded those occupying troops. So he was the worst of the worst of the worst. It is almost as if God has kind of calculated this whole situation with Cornelius to present the greatest possible obstacle for Peter to overcome in preaching the gospel to Gentiles. 
And yet, he is also a man who you can tell has been prepared by the Spirit to receive the gospel readily when the time was right. So you have this very interesting opposite. Probably the most prepared Gentile, you wouldn't have had to speak to him for more than a few seconds probably to get him to believe. And a Jew who has that message, who views him as the last person on earth he might preach it to. Just really interesting how God's got the socket and the plug and he's just going to bring them together. And yet, if apart from God's force to draw them together, there'd been no hope. It is also a reminder, by the way, that as we may seek opportunities to do something similar to what Peter's about to do here, that the least likely target for your message may be the one that God has prepared for the, for the message. And this is, I think, at the core of why Jesus could say something like, don't throw a pearl before swine. It is not that he is suggesting that we have some ability to discern who are the right people or that we should even be in the process of making those kinds of distinctions. We can't. But he is saying that if we try to make somebody our project and despite all that's happening and everything they say and all their resistance, you're going to believe in the gospel if it's the last thing I do. That is throwing pearl before swine, which means that target is the wrong target. That's all it means to me. That's a wrong target. Peter could have preached to the last living Jew in Judea while Cornelius sat in Caesarea waiting for someone to deliver the message. If you're preaching to the wrong person, then you'll be too busy to preach to the right person. And again, you're not trying to figure out who right and wrong is, but you're just looking for the response using the term man of peace that comes out of, of Luke chapter 9. When Jesus sends out the 70 disciples and says, look for the man of peace. If he receives you, spend the night with him. If he doesn't, shake the dust off your sandals and go. You're looking for the one who has been prepped by the Spirit so that when you show up, it's like you're not even working at it. And you wonder how it, why was it so easy? You're looking for the man of peace and it takes very little time. A few moments, half an hour, a little bit of time, a couple of contacts maybe with the person over a period of time. And you'll get very quickly, you'll get the vibe. Is this person receiving? Or are they completely shut down? I don't give up hope for them, but I move on. And my opportunity to come back around is an open question. I don't have to, I don't have to come back around. In other words, I'm not, I'm not having my heart set on that. I'm just open to it. I'm hopeful maybe. But you know what? There's only 7 billion other people on the earth. So if it's not this person, even if it's someone who's dear to me, I'm going to remember that the true brothers and sisters I have are not earthly. Or the true parents I have are not earthly. Or the true uh, relationships that will last are not the earthly ones. So I need to be looking for the relationships that are eternal and work to build those. That's the meaning, I think, of uh, the unrighteous manager when Jesus, uh, using that parable, says, make for yourselves friends in eternity so that when you arrive they will welcome you into those homes, those eternal dwellings. And uh, you're, you're seeking for that relationship to be established before any other. And so... Here you see that being displayed really nicely. God's showing you how the pieces were all laid out. And then in chapter 10, bringing them together. So the scene here is set for the Gentiles to enter the church, starting initially with this man Cornelius. And it begins with a messenger, with an angel, who says in Cornelius, in his dream or in his vision, that his prayers were a memorial or a reminder before God, and now God is ready to act. And you can hear again, see here again, that the process is coming together as a result of God's work to move people into position. And so the angel moves the centurion to dispatch men for Peter. And Peter, it's clear here, does not intend to reach out to Gentiles by his own nature. That seems to be self-evident. So what the Lord's going to do instead is he's going to send the Gentile to Peter. If you won't go to them, I'll send them to you. 
And the details provided here are so specific in the way he says, Cornelius, you're looking for really two Simons living together on the sea in, in Joppa. One's a tanner, one's my disciple. You're going to go get the one that's the disciple. Don't get the tanner. Leave him there. Bring the disciple back. You, those details actually, in, in, in seriousness, those details are specific enough you'd know who he was talking about. A tanner in Joppa on the sea. There's probably only one guy that fits that description. And Simon. Probably only one guy that fits that description. So they find him. Dr. Constable, just to end tonight, Dr. Constable tells how modern missionaries often have similar stories of these people like Cornelius who are seekers after God. And as a missionary has penetrated some remote tribe and preached the gospel, the natives often will have stories that explain how they had previously worshipped the God, the same God that the missionary had preached, and they had prayed to that God that he would send someone to them with more understanding, with more information, so that they could finally understand who this God was who had made himself known to them in some way. And yet it was too ambiguous and too blurry for them to really understand what they were sensing and who it was that they were praying to. But they said, just reveal yourselves through somebody. And then these missionaries would show up. How receptive do you think they were to the missionaries? That's the story that Dr. Constable says he's heard on many occasions from missionaries who reach out into these unreached areas and find an immediate receptiveness in some cases. And so Cornelius, Cornelius knows to obey and Peter is going to be asked to return. We'll come into that next week and see how Peter responds. And the famous dream of Peter... Eating, killing and eating unclean animals. Uh, we'll look at all of that next week. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that you uh, gave me strength to go through the teaching. Thank you that you gave strength to those who would hear it tonight and later as well. And help us, Father, to take the lessons of Paul and Peter and put them into practice in some way for ourselves. We will never be Paul. We will never be Peter. We don't need to be, Father. You've already had them and they've done the work you called them to do. But you've also called us and appointed us to work. I ask, Father, that we would feel the same drive and, and desire to serve as they did. We'd be equally receptive to the Spirit's direction and counsel. And, Father, we'd recognize that like them at times, we have prejudices and we have biases and, uh, and we have faults. So we ask you to help us overcome those so we could be more effective in ministry. And then if it be your will, Father, let us come back next week. We want to continue to learn so we can continue to serve. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.